Well, hello, hello. We are going to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 39. That's the verse for this morning. We're still in a series on covenant theology. We've covered promises. We've covered cutting a covenant. And today we're going to talk about covenant succession. Now, I know covenant succession in our church, not everyone agrees on this doctrine. And I'm sure some of you are wondering, why are you bringing this up in a happy church? It's kind of like bringing Trump up at Thanksgiving. <laughs> why? We're all, we're all getting along so well. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, it's important to understand a number of things and distinctives about us as a church. One of them is that we have a confessional statement um, that is broad, that includes a wide swath of, of, of evangelical Christians. A lot of people can come here um, from various traditions, and, and it's, it's great. We have a very wide front door. <laughs> um, but in order to be an elder here, you, it's a much narrower door, uh, and, a, and a more well-defined uh, doctrinal statement is required. So the confession that I personally adhere to, I was asked at ordination, is the Westminster Confession. And I may be telling you guys a bunch of things you don't really understand. The, the key is that you know, our, the statement that we have as, as a church is like three paragraphs. Um, the Westminster Confession is 33 chapters. <laughs> so it outlines my doctrinal positions, and, and if you ever wonder what mine are, if you turn to the Westminster Confession, it states it there. Now, all of this is prefaced to say this. You know, whether you baptize your children and consider them part of the covenant or not part of the covenant, you wait until they make a profession of faith, none of those issues are issues that define our fellowship, Ever. I stand very firmly on this. And knowing that I can be somewhat dogmatic and pugnacious when I preach, <laughs> I did not want anyone to get the wrong idea and start wondering if I'm drawing a line in the sand about fellowship. I'm not. But I, it's my responsibility to teach the whole counsel of God. Coming from the Westminster Confession and its traditions as, as it is, this is going to go a particular direction, <laughs> I, one that I know that we all don't agree on. So hear, hear me out. Um, li- listen carefully, take notes. Uh, I'm, I'm very, I'm always available. Joel's available. Jared's available to, to talk about these things. Uh, they're very serious. I am bringing this up for particular reasons, but I am not defining the fellowship of Redeemer Church. It's just very important to make that very clear. So before we open the word of God, let us together seek the face of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for the diversity of your church Lord, that you are discipling us, that you are raising us, your children, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that you uh, have called us into covenant with you, that you have made promises to us, that you have graciously, Lord, drawn us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word today, that you would give us both uh, humility and uh, courage, Lord, to consider what's said there, to consider our own lives to be um, renewed in our minds and our hearts, to grow and mature, Lord, as you have called us to do. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and we thank you, Lord, for the body, your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I've, I've, there have been new people in the church the last couple of years. They, they have asked me, sit down, please explain why is it you put water on children. And I've, I've had a very difficult time Right? Why do I baptize kids? It's actually really difficult for me to explain, oddly enough. There's a lot of things I can explain very easily. Uh, this one, I, I came to these convictions from a very strange direction. I had a friend at Mars Hill when I was newly converted who used to make all these arguments 
I've heard all the arguments for it. I didn't believe it. I told him he was a nut. I told him, one day on a Friday, I'm going to sit down with you next week, and I'm going to finally clear up this mess so that you'll stop being such a weirdo. That Sunday, I went to church, and Mark Driscoll preached on Genesis chapter 17, circumcision. I sat down a credo-baptist. I rose up a pedo-baptist, and thanks for Mark Driscoll to this day for it. Um, I, back in the day when you went to that church, you could actually talk to him, and he loved it when I would say, hey, you helped make me a pedo-baptist. Um, he, being a credo-baptist himself, didn't find that to be very funny. <laughs> he was never entertained. He's like, I don't think you were listening. And in those days, I used to read Deuteronomy primarily. That was the only book in the Bible I tended to read. I'd read Deuteronomy and then read another book and then read Deuteronomy and read another book. And, and so my thinking about all these things is shaped by the Old Testament. And, and that's why it's so difficult. When, I, when people ask me to explain this, I say, listen, I will have to sit down with you and explain how I understand the Bible, uh, which is no easy task. And that's why this sermon today is actually what I'm going to do. I'm going to explain how I understand the Bible. And to do that, we're going to start in Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Now, this is a New Testament passage. This is post-resurrection, post-ascension of Jesus Christ. This is the day of Pentecost, when the apostle is declaring the word of God, and many people are cut to the heart, and many people are convicted, and, and, and he says to them in, in verse 39, for the promise is for you, the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, immediately what you see is that the people who are standing before him, the promises are for them. The promises are also for their children. And the promises are also for those who are far off. And in that, you see how God works. He converts people, and he he brings in households, and he's always going out into the world to people who are not of him and bringing them in. There are those who are far off, those who are here, and those generations that are coming after the people he's speaking to. And why I'm starting here is because I I I have a question. How would Peter's listeners, the people standing there that day, right? Not the ones who read the London Baptist Confession of 1689, not those who had read the Heidelberg Catechism, but the people standing there on Pentecost, how would they have heard this statement? Given his choice of words, what did Peter want them to think about them and their children and the people who were far off? Now, unlike many modern believers, these men who are, these men and women and families who were standing there on the day of Pentecost knew their Old Testament thoroughly because it was the only scriptures they had. If anyone at that time had seriously maintained that what Peter had just said was that the children of believers were now to be excluded unless they make some sort of covenant with God on their own as a separate individual, it would have been in the first century incomprehensible. Now, I understand how some of us hear this first, but think, on that day, how absurd would it have been if they hear these words and they say, oh, so our kids are not included then? It's madness. They would have never thought such a thing. What we must not come to the scriptures with are our modern debates and extra-biblical frameworks. Not me, not you, not anyone. Everyone sets those aside. Everyone puts those out of their minds. We are not, it's not R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur sitting down debating on Pentecost. It's the apostles declaring the word of God. And so what, what are they declaring? How is it being received? What's the context? That matters more than what Sproul and MacArthur would have to say about it. 
we should learn from the debates of the first century what they themselves were struggling with, why the apostles were saying what they were saying and not saying what they were not saying. (laughs) The context and the framework in which they heard the apostles proclaiming the good news matters. The central debate throughout Acts is whether the children of Gentiles must first be circumcised under the covenant. This is a thing they spend a lot of ink on. Oh, wait, wait. I'm a Gentile. My whole family is converted. Now do I have to circumcise my kids and follow the law of Moses? And again and again and again, that's the debate in Acts. Nowhere at any time does anyone say, oh, I'm a Jew. Does this include my kids now? Nobody asked that question. Not once. Now, I understand this is an argument from silence, but arguments from silence are pretty powerful, right? It seems to me that if the apostles are trying to convince everyone to stop obeying the law of Moses and stop being circumcised, which they've been doing for thousands of years, they, they properly spend a lot of time talking about it. But if they're likewise going to then say, okay, listen, now your kids are not included automatically anymore in the covenant. They have to make their own covenant. It seems to me, logically, they would have had to spend some time in some of these epistles explaining that debate, but they don't. The debate is, do our kids have to become Jews first? And the answer is no, they don't have to become Jews first. You and your children, that is who God has made his promises to, to you and to your children and to those who are far off. And then let's, let's watch what happens in Acts. Men and their households and those who are far off are all coming in to the kingdom of heaven. What we are talking about is covenant succession. And luckily, to understand the new covenant in Christ and and how covenant succession works, we have five covenants in the Old Testament. Five covenants. Five times God made covenants. And in all of those covenants, covenant succession, the blessings and cursings falling upon the children of believers, is consistent in all five covenants. So then you come along with the new covenant, and what do we assume? That it's going to be the same or different? And this really is the question. This is the question. Some of us have a framework where you have to make the argument that it is the same. Some of us say, no, you have to make the argument that it's not the same. I'm going to go with this model all the way through. The new covenant is like these old covenants, but better. Some people say, no, 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 those old covenants are old covenants, and we're going to carry things into the new covenant. You've got to make the argument. You've got to show me the verse where it says this is what we're going to do. Now, this raises a number of problems. God is the same yesterday and today. He's the same tomorrow. He hasn't changed. He has revealed a great deal since the Garden of Eden. But the revelation is consistent when it comes to covenant succession, the status of believers' children. There's a five-point outline when God makes a covenant. This is what Jared is going to explain in his class. I've only been touching on a few of them, but there's this five-point structure all of the covenants. And the last one, the fifth point, is succession. What's going to happen to your children? What, what does God intend? What is he promising when it comes to those who are going to take on this covenant once you are all dead? And if you want to know all about that, chapters 31 to 34 of Deuteronomy explain it very clearly. The fifth point of covenant concerns the heirs of the covenantal blessings. God intends for the covenant to continue from generation to generation in godly families, adding new families through the conversion of individuals and their households. That's the plan. Okay, You and your children are going to go out and you're going to build the kingdom of God. And as you go and as you fight and as you win, God is going to add family after family after family until the family takes up the whole world. That's the plan. 
But let us begin, I'm getting ahead of myself, at the beginning. Let's begin at the beginning. It's always the best place to start, isn't it? Peter's hearers on Pentecost understood his statement about promises and their children in the context of their Bible, the Old Testament. It's the only thing at the time that they had. We know that the New Testament teaches us the true meaning of the Old Testament, but what is often missed by modern Christians is that the Old Testament also teaches us how to understand the New. We think it's a one-way street. We think the New Testament comes along and it explains all the things in the Old Testament. But that's, it's a two-way street. The Old Testament requires us to understand the New Testament. Have you noticed in Genesis, or Matthew chapter 1, there's this genealogy. And I remember when I was a baby Christian, somebody gave me just the New Testament, and I opened the New Testament, and, I, and the first thing I read about is a genealogy of a bunch of people, and I'm like, where is that part? Who are these people? Who are these people? It seems to be important because Jesus descends from them. And so I thought, this is kind of ridiculous that somebody gave me a New Testament. So that is when I went on this mission to find out who all these people are that they, that they mention in Matthew chapter 1. I needed the Old Testament to help me understand the New Testament. We need the New Testament to help us understand the Old Testament. Now, one of the first things is that God did not make man as an individual. I know that we are individuals. We could debate even what that means. What is self? What is an individual? What is that? We are modern people. We have all the modern problems that modern people have, and it's difficult for us, to, especially modern American Christians, to think of anything other than me. Sometimes we'll think of our spouses and our children, but that is not how God made us. He didn't make us as these individuals. He made a people right out of the, right out of the gate. He was not interested in nearly individuals. He, he needs individuals in order to make a people, But it's not about individuals. The telos, the goal, is a people. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 to 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The nature of the biblical story from the beginning is not about individuals, it's about families, a husband, a wife, and their children. The structure of Genesis sets a pattern that is carried through to Revelation, and to see the inclusion of children in the New Covenant requires us seeing this thread, this continuity from the old to the new. If you turn to the New Testament, attempt to interpret things like Acts 2.39 without a full grasp of this continuity, then you are not going to understand it. What do you mean the promises belong to me and my children? Peter, Peter, just relax, sit down. Paul's coming, and Paul's going to explain to us that it's really about individuals. No, it never says that. You have to understand this continuity from the Old Testament to the New if you're going to understand Acts 2.39 at all. There is not a text in which we are commanded or that describes giving communion to women. This is my example as to what... Like, here, here's an example of something that's very much like including children. But for some reason, we're all able to make the argument in our minds, and it works, and it's the same as including children in covenants. Can anyone open your Bible and, and, and turn to an example in the New Testament where a woman is, takes communion or it tells us to give communion to women? Okay, good, good. You're all reading the right kind of Bibles. There is no express command, and there is no example. 
So why do we give communion to women? It would be absurd for me to argue other, right? Oh, no, 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 I'm not, it, tell, it doesn't tell me to do it, so I'm not doing it. And there goes the whole church, out the front door like you should. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Now, why do we give them communion? Because of their status in Jesus Christ. Well, where do we make that argument from? Where does it tell us explicitly that women are now equal to men in the new covenant? Okay, well, there, you have to sit down and you have to actually look around in the, in the scriptures. In Galatians, Paul says some things. There are men and women. It goes out of their way to say are baptized in Acts several times. Men and women, okay? So women have the status in the new covenant that they didn't have in the old covenant. Why? Because the new covenant is better. I understand who women are in the new covenant because of their status in Christ. Now, I don't need proof texts about kids because I understand who they are Why? Because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. It's the same argument that you're making. Now, this is a little of an aside, but it's an important, I think, to start thinking about the scriptures differently. There are all kinds of arguments we make that are not based on proof text. How about the Trinity? The word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in scripture. Now, I have to sit down, and I have to, by good and necessary consequence, it says in the Westminster Confession, puzzle it out. And I actually think the Trinity is a little harder to show than covenant succession. I'll be honest with everyone. It's easier to just, it's much easier, clearer. Oh, look, your kids are included. Now, after the fall, actually, wait, let me go back for a second. Let's go back to Adam for just a moment. What is assumed by God when he commands Adam to be fruitful and multiply? What does he assume? He assumes he's going to have children. Can Adam fulfill his calling, his commission, without his children? He can't. Now, the children, right, they're out there on a mission that they received from their father who received it from God, and, and, and do they have any status with God apart from Adam? No. But can Adam fulfill what he's supposed to do without his children? No. What God has commanded us as Christians to do requires our children, okay? And, and whether you have physical children or spiritual children, there are people who have both. I have both. Some people have one. Some people have the other. Some people have both. It's both kinds of parenthood, right? Our, our children is how we go on conquering, bringing the kingdom, expanding the kingdom. Adam couldn't fulfill his mission without the children. He needed them. Now, after the fall, it's very similar. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, how is Adam going to accomplish this if he doesn't have children? How's he going to do it? It's a seed that's going to come and save them. Now, this is a very strange thing because 1 Timothy, I think it is, one of the epistles to Timothy, Paul says this hilarious thing. I love it. She will be saved through childbearing. And everybody's like, what did he just say? Women are saved through childbearing. Well, if you go and you look at the text, he says, the woman. And if you look here, it says, the woman. So whenever they reference the woman, they don't mean a woman. They mean the woman, Eve. Eve is saved through childbearing. Why? Because she needs a seed that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. It's not just about her and her relationship with God. It's about her and the fruit of her womb. It's about her and what she goes out... And, and, and the women she has an influence on, the children she has an influence on, bringing the, to fulfillment the things that God says will come to pass. The book of Genesis goes on and mentions lists of generations 14 times. 
Why? Because the whole book, after he says, a seed is going to come from you that's going to crush the head of Satan, now what you have are these two families who are at war with one another, and that's what the whole biblical story goes on, and that's what it's about. But in every single one of these generations, it is a father and son and their son and their son and their son and their son. And then it's not like, oh, and then they're slave and we start over and then, okay. No, it's, here, is, here is the lineage from father to son, from father to son, from father to son. Why? Because that's how God is telling the biblical story. It's, a, it, it's about going out and right, taking Nebuchadnezzar, who's this rabid unbeliever, and making him a, right? We love stories like that. The Bible's full of them. Jonah goes to Nineveh and starts preaching, converts all kinds of people. Awesome. All of that stuff goes on throughout the Bible. But then you also have this plotting that goes on from father to son to son to son to son to generation to generation to generation. Now, how do some of the generations do? See, this is why last week I actually covered cutting a covenant before I went to this. Okay? Jesus is very clear. It's not necessarily about your being sons of Abraham because I can make sons of Abraham out of rocks. It's about you being obedient. But we understand that in in some families, it's both, right? Some of our children are being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They believe because we tell them to, (laughs) right? And what they have to do is go out and actually make that their own and own it. But but cutting a covenant puts an edge on it, doesn't it? I'm not just going to assume my children are going to grow up and and, and I'll see them in heaven. And now that I've had them, I put some water on them, we're all good. See you guys in heaven. That's not how it works. Now, I'm already running out of time. (laughs) Some of these subjects, I'm telling you. So I'm just going to pass through some things now somewhat more quickly because this section's already taken a long time. Okay, so Genesis chapter 15, verse 4 through 6. Okay, you tell me what the theme of these covenants are. 15, chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, his faith wasn't about something random. His faith was about a a very specific promise. And the specific promise is that God will actually give him a seed as as high, the number will be as high as there are stars in the heavens. He didn't just believe that God is God. He didn't just believe that God is good. He believed that God would give him generations. His very faith in God had to do with his children. And this creates for us some problems, frankly, because it's not just about me and what I do now, right? It's about what I I go to the scriptures and I look at what God has promised to my children, and and I either believe it or I don't. Now, again, you go to the, the, there are all kinds of believing dads. Samuel is one of them, and they have to put his sons out of the, (laughs) out of the tabernacle for a time. But then if you go and you, if you read carefully, they come back, right? David had to have some sons that they had to put to death. Now, does his status completely ride solely on what happens with his children? No. But and you see here in Abraham, then, there's this, two, th- there's this thing that we have to reconcile. Abraham's, his, the thing he had faith in was the promises God made to him about his children. 
that raises the stakes for everybody. Later in Genesis 15, the same chapter, further down, in uh, verses 12 through 16, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So why is God making a covenant with Abraham and talking about his children 400 years in the future? Why? Why does he do such a thing? Unless, unless he has some expectation that what he is giving to Abraham is going to be handed down generation after generation after generation. It's madness, to, right? If, it, if it's all up to them, it's all up to those kids 400 years now, why would he put that burden on Abraham? Unless there's some sort of covenantal expectation. And it's a little more explicit further back in Genesis. In, in chapter 9, God says that, Noah, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now, are they obligated then? How much, how much more serious is it for the children of believers than some person who just walks in off the street? Right? You're, you're born with this. You're born into this thing. Right? My, my, I have six kids. They were all born into it. And, and, and there is a burden on them now to take this mantle on. And there's a burden on me to have them take up this mantle, not as hypocrites, but as actual believers. Now, that changes the nature of Christianity. When you start thinking this way, it's not about you. It's not about your life. It's not about your do's and don'ts. It's not about the mistakes you've made. It takes on this massive weight as a son and as a parent, as a daughter and as a mother. Exodus 24, verse 3 through 7. Exodus 24, we're going to look at several verses in Exodus, but Exodus 24 is also a covenant-making chapter. If you want to know about covenants, read Exodus 24. We read through in verses 3 through 7, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Now here is already a test. All the people. Who does that include? Given how God has been up till now, who does all the people include? All the dads? All the men? All the parents? Or all the people? All the people are there, and all the people agree. Well, what about the three-year-old who's standing there, or the two-month-old who's in his mother's arms, and, every, and his, the whole nation raises its voice as one and says, we will do this. What about them? The God that we've described already, does he include them or not? Now, oddly enough, um, <laughs> right? Who, who crossed through on the dry ground when they passed through the Red Sea? Was it the men and the, and the wives and children took the long way? <laughs> okay, ladies, kids, you guys go around. The men are going to pass through now on the dry grand, ground because the covenant belongs to us, not to you. Right? Women, you're not, you, don't even, you can't even be circumcised. You ain't even part of the party. Okay? Leave. Children, not you, for sure. 
There's Moses, right, giving everybody a test as they pass through on the dry ground. Can you explain to me the Ten Commandments? Can you explain to me the faith? Can you explain to me how it is that you came to be here today? Now, what would we think if that was what Moses did? And yet, that is what we do. You've got to explain to me now why I'm going to let you throw on this dry ground. Opposed to, hey, our household is going to cross on the dry ground and everybody's going with us. Now, just because God has a sense of humor, believe it or not, the Apostle Paul talks about this section <laughs> in, in Corinthians. And I, and I do say he has a sense of humor. Because this, this for me, as far as like my, my modern framework, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, I've had to puzzle over it more than, I think, any other chapter in the New Testament, except for the one where Jesus comes out of the ground. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, I have to say, from my point of view, I read that, I'm like, oh, so we baptize our kids and give them communion. Because all the people of Israel passed on this dry ground and were baptized into Moses. Which, by the way, was it a dunking or a sprinkling? Because it's dry ground and there's this mist. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted. (laughs) I'm not going there. But there's this idea in the Old Testament where God says, take the people of Israel, get them out of here, I will let them pass through on dry ground. I will bring them into this land. I will fulfill this for them. And he doesn't separate them by age. He doesn't separate them by the, their ability to, to clearly articulate the, the, the law of God. He brings a people. And so uh, when God is making a covenant with them in Exodus 24, and they're all standing there, they're all standing there. That was all to make that point. Right? At this stage, and with Moses, when it says Israel, it's everybody. Now later, right, when, when God made a covenant with David, who did that include? Who did that include? God says to David in 2 Samuel, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul when I put away, when I put away from him, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. He literally is including the children in the very words he's using to make the covenant. Now, what does he say? I will discipline them. Because I'm telling you right now, I can, (laughs) covenant members, you can be baptized, you can go to church, and you can take communion, but you're still all going to need to get some discipline. Right? And to think otherwise is madness. But he's saying, though, I'm gonna, but why am I going to treat him like a son and not like an unbeliever? Because he's your son, David. So when it comes to our children, how is God going to treat them? He's going to discipline them like children. Even if we're not treating them like his children, he's going to treat them like his children. 
That is what he's promising, to not give up on them, no matter if they sin or not, but to continue to discipline them, continue to work on them, to continue to call them to the covenant that they're included in because of their parents. Okay, before we leave the Old Testament, I'm just going to ask a question. Are the prophets in the, in the latter part of the Old Testament false prophets or true prophets? I mean, because a true prophet is one who says, this is what's going to happen. And if it happens, he's a true prophet. If it doesn't happen, he's a false prophet, and he's no good. And you hang him from a tree, right? You deal with him severely. You put him to death. How did the latter prophets in the Old Testament describe the new covenant that you are now all members of? They're not describing some covenant in the intertestimonial period that we've never heard of. They're describing the new covenant of which Christ came, and he is the head, in which you are all members of. Now, you tell me what this sounds like. You tell me what kind of covenant that they are talking about that Jesus is going to have with us. Jeremiah chapter 32, 38 through 40. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Remember, that is the central promise of the covenants of promise. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Now, is the new covenant then a covenant that includes children or not? They're either false prophets or they're true prophets. Isaiah says the same thing, and we all love Isaiah, right? Isaiah is the one we trust. He's the prophet we, most know, we know the most about because at Christmas time he always gets to come out and tell us very encouraging things about the Messiah. But he says in uh, chapter 59, verse 21 of his book, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Now you tell me, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, the promises are for me, but it's a real crapshoot when it comes to my kids. Well, let me tell you something. It's a real crapshoot when it comes to you. So let's just deal with that right out of the gate. There is a crapshoot involved here, and it's everybody. Right? I, I, I'm 40 going on 42. I've been a Christian 16 years now. And the most shocking thing that I've learned about the church is you don't end with everybody you started with. It's a real crapshoot with a lot of people because it's about obedience or not. But Isaiah is either a true prophet or he's a false one. And he says, this is not just for you. This is for your children and their children. Why? Because since Genesis, that's how God deals with his people. He's never any different. And you don't get to presume upon that. You've got to rise to that calling. Right? We see what happens when men don't. How did, how did Eli do? How did Samuel do? How did David do? Right? There's lots of examples of guys just like us. But to say automatically that they're not of us is to call God a liar. It's to call Isaiah a liar. It's to call Jeremiah a liar. To, to say that God is now different than he used to be. That's really what we're talking about. And is, is he or isn't he? Has he changed? Because it's, right? 
that's also a possibility. But what does the scriptures have to say about that? All right, so you get to Matthew chapter 1, and how does it open? There was this great hero, one of a kind, a man all on his own, the great savior of the world. He had no help. He came from nowhere. He's a man with no name. No. It starts with this. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And it goes on and on and on. Three sets of 14 generations. Now, in that cast are some doozies, including David, later, who only gets mentioned in reference to the man he murdered. Right? You've got women who are raped. You have women who go through very difficult circumstances, women who are Gentiles in the list. It's a motley crew. But it is a crew of fathers and sons and their children and their children and their children because God's very plan for defeating his enemies and conquering the world came through a family. So why would he treat your families differently? Why would they suddenly function differently than his own? Right? You come into this family, does it include you and your kids? It's got to, because otherwise there's no way for you to fulfill what he's told you to do. Mary, the mother of the Lord, knew her Psalter, and she knew Psalm 103, verses 17 to 18. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So covenant keeping there and law and ethics is all involved. It's not just about who your dad is. It's about who your dad is and you're obeying his God and obeying the commandments of his God. But she understands and this is why in Luke 1, 48 to 50, when she's singing, she's singing this beautiful song about God and his faithfulness. She says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, modern, individualistic, Modern Christians hear this and add words to it. I know that they do. There's, it's what happens when we have these frameworks that we impose upon the scriptures. Many people hear this and they say from unrelated generation to unrelated generation. As if God, right? Well, all the people from the last generation are dead, so I guess I'll start over. And that is literally how, this is literally how people think. Right? It's all, the individuals I made covenants with are gone, so now what we're going to do every generation is start over. But he talks about the fact, right? what does Mary say? From generation to generation to generation, and what's, what is a generation in this sense? It's your children. Now, what would Moses hear when Mary sang this? What did Noah hear? What would, how would Peter summarize Mary's words. He would say, listen, the promises belong to you and to your children. Now there's one last thing that I have to deal with, and this is probably the more controversial thing I'm going to say. I saved it to the end. You're welcome. (laughs) 
context matters. The context of, in which the apostles lived and wrote matters a great deal. It actually matters more than the, our context in which we're reading the scriptures. And there are only two occasions in the entire Bible where individual people are baptized. Only twice. Either, after, other than these two outliers, it's either huge groups of people at one time or households. On Pentecost, we know that thousands and thousands of people right, were, were baptized all at once. Later, Simon was baptized in Acts 8, but even he is included in the statement of men and women. So even he's part of a group, so he doesn't really count as an individual, right? It's, it's these groups of people who are baptized. The only real individuals who are baptized with no reference to any other person being baptized at the same time. See, and, and this is, I want everyone to listen very carefully to this. Only twice in Acts are there individuals baptized where there's no other people baptized. The eunuch, now, can a eunuch have a household? Right? He's a eunuch in the service of a king. He doesn't have children. So he's just, it's just him. He's baptized. Later, Paul is also baptized. And he's baptized all alone. There's nobody else who's baptized with him. But we know about him, right? He's an example for many of us who, aren't, who don't have natural children. Because in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 15, he says, I do not write things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I have spiritual parents and parents who are also spiritual parents. Right? Many of us have spiritual parents. But that's it. Those are the outliers. Those are the only time individual men are baptized in no reference to any other people. The New Testament was lived and written in the Roman world. When the apostles used the word household... Does the Roman conception of what a household is matter? Now, I say household, and everyone knows who I mean. I mean me, my wife, and my children. Okay? My parents don't live with us. I have no slaves yet. That's a joke. I have no servants, right? I have no clients, as they would in the Roman world. I, there's, it's just us. So we understand households to be very different. But a Roman household in the Greco-Roman world was very, very different. And, and if you think, how does Paul often start... He, goes, he starts doing ethics, and how does he do it? He says, okay, fathers act this way, uh, wives act this way, children act this way, servants act this way. And he goes to these household codes, they're called, because back then, in that day, when they wrote ethics, they wrote household codes. Here's how the, the father is supposed to conduct himself, and, his, and then they go through all the dependents. And so Paul and the apostles, several times in First Peter and Ephesians and Colossians, they say, okay, here's how I want all of you to act, and they do the exact same thing. They, they phrase it in, in household ethics. The household is an important kinship unit in the ancient world. According to Aristotle, the founder of Greco-Roman ethics, a complete household consists of slaves and freemen, the first and fewest possible parts of a family, the fewest and first possible parts of a family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. In the households of the wealthy, however, one finds not only parents with married sons and their children or their eldest married son and unmarried siblings, but also slaves and clients conceptually under the same roof, even if they are, have their own households. Now, what a client is is a, is a sermon all on its own. 
Because back then, when you worked for somebody, you didn't just, you know, clock in at their, at their shop and go home. You, you were part of their household, actually. So, in the context of the New Testament, the concept of a household includes parents and dependents, slaves and children and clients. And, and, and the Old Testament and New Testament have more in common with this. Because, remember, Abraham gets his household together to ride out to save people, and he has 300 soldiers. Now, how many people do you have to have in your household in order to field 300 soldiers? Right? We can field how many in this church? And there's 150 people here. We can field, what, 27 of military age and training? Maybe that's a little high. We'd have to train a few of you, but we could field you. Okay? How big is Abraham's household when he has 300 soldiers in it? He has more in common with the Greco-Roman household. Throughout Acts... It's either large groups of people or households. Households are, in fact, are the most baptized item in Acts. Acts eleven thirteen through 15. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message about which you will be saved, you and all your household. Acts 16, 14 to 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the sea of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Acts 16, 31 through 34. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That he, <laughs> he believed in God. The whole household, because this is the Greco-Roman world, says, oh, you, the leader of the home, were baptized. Because you believed in this. Now we're all going to go baptize, be baptized with you and rejoice in this because now that we are your house, now that you've gone this direction, we've all gone this direction. And that's how it worked in the Greco Roman world. So here, here's, an, here's a question. Right? Where, where did we get this understanding of a household? Is it a modern conception that I'm using or the contextual conception of what a household was in the, in, in the first century? That is why we can't just turn to a verse in the New Testament and read, oh, okay, the eunuch was reading Isaiah. He said, let, let me be baptized. He makes this profession of faith. That's what baptism always looks like. Because you're, you're, at that point, you're not paying attention to the Old Testament, and you're not paying attention to the cultural context of, of the New Testament. Households are baptized more than anything else in the New Testament. And I don't think the burden of proof is upon the apostles to list names and ages. I really don't. I think if you're going to go that direction, uh, have fun. I'm not going to really engage in that kind of tearing apart of the scriptures. What's a household, right? It, it includes all kinds of people from all generations. Now, who are the people most qualified to lead the household of God? Titus 1.6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So my qualification as a minister involves my children. If, if, I, if they grow up and one goes away, I go away. And I will say, Joel and Jared, 
You're going to have to find somebody else for a while because I've got to go and take care of this. Now, why is my position in the household of God dependent upon my children and what they do or don't do? And yet, when it comes to the covenant that we're all in with God, the status of our children has nothing to do with it. Do you see how illogical that is? No, what God wants are men who know how to raise a God-fearing household, leading the people of God, and how to raise what? A God-fearing household. That's the point. The point is not the ballot box. The point is not the public square. Right? All that stuff comes along with it, and it's secondary to the fact that we are instructing you in how to be householders. And if I fail in my duty as a householder, get rid of me. I, I am not going to be one of these guys that if I have a kid who goes astray and, and I just keep on keeping on because, man, that guy can preach. Get rid of me. And any elder that is, that is in fact, unable to raise good ch- God-fearing children They do not belong leading the household of God because the point is teaching people how to be good householders. That's the point. You you don't say your household has nothing to do with your faith in Jesus Christ, but the people who are going to lead you are going to be people who must be good householders. That, again, is illogical to me. Now, who is God? When he first reveals himself to Moses, there are aspects of that revelation that fly by us, and we don't realize what he's saying about himself. If he's the same God all the time, who he reveals himself to be in Exodus is sort of important. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. See, we usually have already stopped. And we're like, oh, he's this great I am. That's fantastic. But he goes on and adds things to his name. The Lord, uh, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my name forever. And I am to be remembered throughout all generations as what? The God of our fathers. Now, you may not have had an earthly father who was a believer. But does that mean that you do not have spiritual fathers? You may, have, you may have a father who, who is alive and, and with you and raised you fairly well, and he's not a believer. So, when you, so is, is this, how do we understand what's being said here? We understand that the God who is, is revealing himself in, Bible, in the Bible is a God of generations. And he will either call, call a man and walk with that generation after generation after generation after generation, right? And at, and, and at every point, it starts with that. Who is Abraham? Do we know who, right? Who was his father? Who was his father, God? No, Abraham is called, and now he is the father of this new race that ends in Jesus, that comes and delivers generations from, and crushes the head of Satan and saves the world. It starts with somebody. So I, I'm, I'm pleased that my sons will be able to say, I serve God of my, of my father, Michael. And his father, Paul, 
and his mother, Ruth, and her mother. Now, if you can say that, this is, this is my, my, last, my, my last dig. I love everybody. But it's so funny to me when you have someone who's like five generations worth of Christians, and I still am making it it's very hard to prove to them that God works through generations. I, I look in the mirror. What more proof do you need? Right? And, and I know you, and I know what you've, you've been doing. <laughs> Whew, I know what you were up to for a time in your life, and yet here you are. And was God faithful to you all by yourself? Or was he faithful to your father and his father and his grandmother? God reveals himself to be the God of fathers and their children. And now, right, we, right it includes mothers. Galatians 3:28 to29, "There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offering, heirs according to promise. And if the covenant that God made with Abraham included children's, 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 and we've now been the, we are the seed that he was talking about generations down the way, does it suddenly stop including our children? We're taken up into a covenant that includes children. And does it now suddenly, because it's the New Testament and Jesus, who's the mediator of a better covenant, now has downgraded his covenant and said, no, 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 it's up to them all on their own. How is it a better covenant if it's downgraded? He upgraded the status of women, but he downgraded the status of children? Again, this is where the logic of it just... We run into trouble when we read the scriptures. There's all kinds of logical problems with some of our interpretations. How would he upgrade women and downgrade children? Why does the covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David all include children, but then Christ would be like, no, 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 that didn't really work the first time, this generational thing, even though he's standing there. So we're going to try something different. And I'm going to just start over every generation and hope and pray. Now, what is... (laughs) Mike, why? Why did you come to Thanksgiving dinner and start talking about Trump? The reason is because I, all of us are called to something higher than we realize. And I think you're called to something higher than you realize, whether you agree with me or not. You are called into something that goes back generations, and that is going to keep going on for generations. And so the generation that we have sitting here, the generations that we have sitting here, it's very important that they understand what God requires of them. And that is real, heartfelt belief and true obedience in all things, as individuals and as fathers and mothers, as husbands and wives, as communities, as clerks, as lawyers, as whatever your profession is. What he wants is obedience. And this is an area where if we want to see things change, right, the liberals are really good at understanding how covenant theology works. Why? They create these schools where we send all of our children there, and then they don't have to have their own because it's expensive, and they train them and, and generationally how to do what? How do you think the United States has ended up here? A post-millennial covenantal view of unbelievers. Because you can go back and the commies were like, you know, when we just start making movies and stuff, it's like we're not winning. What we have to do is, is back up and go after the colleges. And boom, here we are. <laughs> like we need a more post-millennial covenantal view of what we're doing. And we're getting our lunch handed to us because the enemies of God understand how, this, how the world functions better than we do. 
And if the household of God can't get its household in order, we're not going to be able to go on and see um, the, the kingdom of Christ revealed in this world like we would if we were following God's program. And that is faithful parents raising faithful children. Um, G.K. Chesterton said that there is nothing more extraordinary than an ordinary man and his ordinary wife and their ordinary children. And I'm telling you right now, there is nothing as powerful as that. And if you don't believe me, open Matthew chapter 1 and read the genealogies. There is nothing more extraordinary than an ordinary man and his ordinary wife and their ordinary children. This has always been God's plan to conquer the world. He has not changed and, and, and the promises that he has given to you belong to you and to your children and their children. And that's how we have to start. We have to believe it. And we have to start being obedient in it. And that is the, the, the way that we will bring reformation to this culture, reformation to this world. Amen. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your covenant, the, the new covenant in Christ that we've been called to the promises that you've made to us in your grace and your goodness. Lord, for, for taking upon yourself the stipulations of the covenant that our failures and our weaknesses and our sins, Lord, would not prevent us from coming to you and, and having you dwell in our midst. We thank you, Lord, that you are here with us now. I pray that as we go from here, that we would uh, consider these things, that we would, um, Lord, be strengthened in our faith, that we would open the scriptures uh, with a, an open mind and read it faithfully, and apply it faithfully. We thank you and praise you in the name of your Son, and amen.